And if you have a Bible, turn please to the book of Job. We've been looking at this for a few weeks together now. And as this book opened, we saw Job surrounded with God's blessings. His life was dripping with blessing from God. But before the introduction to the book was over, those blessings had been removed. All of them had been removed. And Job has no idea why they've been removed. As readers of the book, we have been told, we know Job has been left with nothing but God to prove that God himself is enough. We know that, but Job doesn't know. He is in the dark about his situation. And the darkness is the most distressing thing about his situation. More than the loss of his family, his health and his wealth, Job struggles because he has no idea why he's lost all those things. It makes no sense to him. In chapter 3, he described himself as a man whose way is hidden. He has been hedged in by God. And Job does not mean that in a good way. He means God has surrounded him with suffering. And he has been shown no way forward. This morning we're going to hear more from Job. And before we do listen to him some more, we need to ask, what are we to make of Job? How are we supposed to listen to him? How does God expect us to listen to this man? Last week we asked the same question about Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar. We noticed that chapters 4 through to 27 are one long argument between Job and his friends. They go around and around in these chapters. The three friends are all in agreement with one another. They all make the same points to Job. And Job argues back. So for the duration of chapters 4 to 27, Job is a team of one. And last week, Eliphaz started the whole thing off. After listening to Job pour out his pain in chapter 3, Eliphaz offered the benefit of his wisdom to Job. At least he thought he was offering wisdom. But we took a peek at the end of the book. And the end of the book told us we are not to swallow the wisdom of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. What they have to offer is not wisdom from God. At the end of the book, God says they have not spoken the truth about him. That word from God is crucial for how we listen to the three friends. So this morning, as we come to Job's first reply to his friends, we have to ask, How are we to listen to Job? Is he to be trusted? Well, here are two things we need to know about Job. Number one, Job is a true worshipper. We know from the start of the book, he is in the right with God. He's not a sinless man. But he is in the right with God. He is not hiding sin. He is not refusing to repent of sin. His sin is dealt with. And at the end of the book, 
God is not angry with Job. God does not say Job has spoken falsely about him. At the beginning and the end of the book, God refers to Job as my servant Job. In the Old Testament, it is a high honor to be referred to as a servant of the Lord. It shows Job has a living relationship with God. The friends simply do not have that. The friends are only theorists when it comes to God. They have lots to say about God, but they don't seem to know him. They certainly don't talk to him. Job, on the other hand, talks to God with an immediacy and a boldness that shocks us most of the time. Job's relationship with God is more real and alive than anything else in his life. In fact, it's the obsession of his life. So as we listen to Job, we know we are listening to a true worshipper, a genuine servant of God. But number two, we are listening to a servant of God who is speaking from a place of darkness. Job's emotions are dark and his awareness is dark. He's in despair and he's lacking information. It's a double darkness that he has. In terms of emotional darkness, we saw that at its very worst in chapter 3. As the book goes on, Job is going to inch his way forward out of that. We're going to watch him move from just wanting to die to wanting an audience with God so he can make his case to God. So the emotional darkness will ease slightly as the book goes on. But the darkness of lacking information is not going to lift. So as we listen to Job, we need to be aware we are listening to a true worshipper, yes. But a true worshipper speaking about things beyond his grasp. His perspective is the perspective of a finite human who cannot see God's purposes. In fact, at the end of the book, after Job has been given his audience with God, he says, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. So let's keep this in our minds. As we listen to Job, we're listening to a true worshipper, but a true worshipper who cannot see all that God's doing. With that in mind, let's listen to him, to this true worshipper. Turn, if you haven't already, to Job chapter 6. That's page 512, or in the large print Bibles, 790, Job chapter 6. And we're going to read all of chapter 6 and 7, this one speech that covers two chapters. Then Job replied, If only my anguish could be weighed, and all my misery be placed on the scales, It would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Does a wild donkey bray when it has grass? Or an ox bellow when it has fodder? 
Is tasteless food eaten without salt? Or is there flavor in the sap of the mallow? I refuse to touch it. Such food makes me ill. Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut off my life. Then I would still have this consolation, my joy and unrelenting pain, that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. What strength do I have that I should still hope? What prospects that I should be patient? Do I have the strength of bronze, the strength of stone? Is my flesh bronze? Do I have any power to help myself now that success has been driven from me? Anyone who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams as streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow, but that stop flowing in the dry season and in the heat vanish from their channels. Caravans turn aside from their roots. They go off into the wasteland and perish. The caravans of Tema look for water. The traveling merchants of Sheba look in hope. They are distressed because they had been confident. They arrive there only to be disappointed. Now you too have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. Have I ever said, give something on my behalf, pay a ransom for me from your wealth, deliver me from the hand of the enemy, rescue me from the clutches of the ruthless? Teach me and I will be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. How painful are honest words. But what do your arguments prove? Do you mean to correct what I say and treat my desperate words as wind? You would even cast lots for the fatherless and barter away your friend. But now, be so kind as to look at me. Would I lie to your face? Relent. Do not be unjust. Reconsider, for my integrity is at stake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? Can my mouth not discern malice? Do not mortals have hard service on earth? Are not their days like those of hired laborers, like a slave longing for the evening shadows, or a hired laborer waiting to be paid? So I have been allotted months of futility, and nights of misery have been assigned to me. When I lie down, I think, how long before I get up? The night drags on and I toss and turn until dawn. My body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. They come to an end without hope. Remember, O God, that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never see happiness again. The eye that now sees me will see me no longer. You will look for me, but I will be no more. As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so one who goes down to the grave does not return. He will never come to his house again. His place will know him no more. Therefore, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the monster of the deep? that you put me under guard? 
When I think my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, even then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I prefer strangling and death rather than this body of mine. I despise my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone. My days have no meaning. What is mankind that you make so much of them, that you give them so much attention, that you examine them every morning and test them every moment? Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? If I have sinned, what have I done to you who sees everything we do? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I shall soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I shall be no more. This is God's word. Sometimes people talk about the problem of pain. What they mean is, when we look at suffering, it gives us a problem. It's hard for us to explain. But strictly speaking, there is no problem of pain unless we believe in an all-powerful, loving God. Strictly speaking, pain is no problem for the atheist. Now, it may be a problem in the sense that they don't like it when they experience it. But for the atheist, there can be no intellectual problem of pain. If the universe is just an accidental thing, if there's no creator and there's no ultimate purpose to the universe, if it all boils down to the chance collision of particles, well then, mass murders and cancer and earthquakes and disease epidemics and torture are not problems. They're just stuff that happens to particles. That's all human beings are at the end of the day. And so for the atheist, what we call human suffering is just blind forces working on collections of cells. Ultimately, nobody's to blame and none of it is a shame. It's not worth getting worked up about. It's not worth crying over. We might cry over it, but we have no real reason to cry. Pain and suffering only become a problem to us when we believe our hands are in the our lives are in the hands of an all powerful loving God. That's when suffering can make us confused and deeply upset. And that is the position Job is in. He's in turmoil over his suffering. It's not just a problem for his body, it troubles his faith. But Job struggles with this as a true worshipper. There are no frills to the worship that we find here. This is not polished, pitch-perfect worship. This is gut-level worship. It rises out of intense turmoil. But it's all the more powerful for that. And maybe as we look at this, it will keep us worshipping when we face our own times of turmoil.
In these chapters, we find Job sold out to faithfulness. We find him thirsting for faithful love. And we find him facing up to significance. First of all, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 13, Job is sold out to faithfulness. As chapter 6 begins, Job has just finished listening to Eliphaz. Eliphaz has been very polite, but he's also been no help at all. In chapters 4 and 5, he gave Job a nice pre-packaged answer to his situation. He said, own up to whatever sin you've committed, Job. Submit to God's discipline, and I have no doubt he will wave his wand over your devastated life. He put everything back in place for you. Now Job replies and he says, you are way off the mark, Eliphaz. My problem here is not unconfessed sin. My problem is I'm committed to faithfulness, but I'm drowning in misery. And it's misery sent by God. Look again at chapter 6, verse 2. If only my anguish could be weighed, and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous, or wild might be a better translation. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. In other words, I'm not crying in anguish because of my loss. Bad as that is. I'm letting loose because my loss has come from God. Yes, I know it was human enemies who struck me. I know about the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. I know lightning and a mighty wind did the rest of the damage. But I know too, nothing happens outside God's control. I know God stands ultimately behind this. These poisoned arrows in my life are his poisoned arrows. And Job says, when I long for death, it's not because of the pain. It's because I worry I will end up denying God in my pain. Look again at verse 8. Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me to let loose his hand and cut off my life, then I would still have this consolation, my joy in unrelenting pain, that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. Job says, My mind and my body are desperately weak. And my greatest fear is this, that I'll break down and curse my God. That's that's what my wife told me to do. But my joy, Job says, comes from being faithful to him. And so I pray to die soon. Because, verse 12, I do not have the strength of stone. My flesh is not bronze. I want God to crush me before I break down and betray him. Only a true worshipper 
could feel that kind of pain. Fair weather believers do not talk like this. This is white knuckle worship. To say, I'd rather die than be unfaithful to my God. I'd rather die today than commit adultery. I'd rather die than be eaten up by materialism or bitterness or by dry, dead religion. There's no third way in these words from Job. This is not, well, I'd mostly like to stand for God, but we'll see how it goes. It's hard to be faithful, you know. It's especially hard when God sends difficulty. When he sends tough choices to us. Or tough circumstances. When I have to choose between honoring God or denying him in some way. It's a bit tough to worship him then. So we'll just see what I can manage. Job says, it is tough to worship when God sends difficulty. Of course it is. And so, I would rather be crushed now than cease to worship him. We have to ask ourselves, what can Satan do against commitment like this? What can terrorists or oppressive governments do to stamp out worship like this? Let's ask God to make us worshippers like this. More concerned for faithfulness than we are even for life. As Job goes on, we find him thirsting for faithful love. In verse 14 he says, Anyone who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. The word translated kindness is a very significant term in the Bible. Very significant word. It's mostly used to refer to the particular covenant love that God has for his people. And so kindness really is a bit of a weak translation. Faithful love gets the idea a bit better. And this is the kind of love Job had hoped for from his friends. In fact, he says it's the kind of love friends owe to one another when they truly fear God. But Job is severely disappointed with what Eliphaz has given him. And remember, Eliphaz was representing all three of the friends. They're a team. In verses 15 to 20, Job paints a picture of disappointment. He describes merchants on a long journey. They've been traveling in the heat for weeks. Their water cans are just about empty. But they know, thankfully, about a mountain stream. It's a bit off the track. It's a bit out of their way, but it's worth the detour for the ice-cold water that's there. So they make the trip. They use up the last of their water. 
They just about make it, only to find nothing. Just a dried up riverbed. What a bitter letdown. And Job says to his friends, that's what you are to me. When I saw you in the distance, I was like a thirsty traveler looking for cool water. And my hope rose within me. But you've turned out no better than a dried up stream. What was Job actually looking for from his friends? Well, he says in verse 21, Now you too have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. Have I ever said, give something on my behalf, pay a ransom for me from your wealth, deliver me from the hand of the enemy, rescue me from the clutches of the ruthless, teach me and I will be quiet, show me where I have been wrong. How painful are honest words, but what do your arguments prove? Do you mean to correct what I say and treat my desperate words as wind? You would even cast lots for the fatherless and barter away your friend. But now be so kind as to look at me. Would I lie to your face? Relent. Do not be unjust. Reconsider for my integrity is at stake. Is there any wickedness in my lips? Can my mouth not discern malice? Job says in verse 21, you saw my suffering and you were afraid. As if I was going to ask too much of you. But I didn't want your money. I didn't expect you to go and fight my enemies. I didn't expect you to butter me up either. I wasn't looking for praise. I want to be taught. I want to understand. If I'm wrong, I want to be shown it, Job says. I know that loving words can sting. And I'm ready for some of that. But that is not what you gave me. You listened, then you ignored what I said. You accused me of sin, but you didn't point out my sin. You just gave me your tidy religious explanation. You didn't even stop to see if it fitted my situation. You just delivered it with a bow on the top and you expected me to be thankful. We saw last time what Eliphaz had delivered to Job was the announcement that sinners suffer. And so because Job is suffering, he must be a sinner. But we also saw last week their theory does not fit the facts of Job's life. He's not suffering because of sin. God has said that. But these three friends are very committed to their theory. There's no way they're going to let the facts interfere with their theory. So as the discussion goes on, they will hammer away at Job, determined to make his life fit their theory. And all the while, Job is longing for them just to listen. To stop being the experts for a while. To have some true concern for a man drowning in pain. Don Carson says about the friends, 
There is very little hint of compassion, empathy, honest grief. Their defense of God is unbearably hard. Sometimes when you and I are faced with suffering, we're like the friends. We're afraid of what's in front of us. We're afraid the situation might be beyond us. We're afraid it might not even fit our theories about God and his ways. And so we're tempted just to deliver our pat speech, whatever it is, and then retreat. But faithful love is willing to set aside the pat speech. It's willing to walk with our suffering brother or sister. We might hear this and say, okay, but surely this longing that Job has is not unique to true worshippers. Doesn't everyone long for faithful love? Yes, they do. But for the true worshipper, we long for it with expectation. What I mean is, we know that God is the true source of love. And scripture tells us to look for the love of God in the love of our Christian brothers and sisters. In suffering, we are to expect faithful love from them, at least. They are like a mountain stream God has provided for us. The New Testament says, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another... God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So we are right to look to our brothers and sisters for the love of God. And that means there's all the more pain if our hopes are disappointed. If all we get is prepackaged answers, advice without compassion, theology without love, Now that doesn't mean no one can ever rebuke us or point out sin to us if it's there. Faithful love can do that. But never with harshness. And never until it has listened first in order to understand. These friends don't just have the wrong theory about Job's situation, they have the wrong kind of heart. They're more concerned about defending their theory than they are about loving a dear friend. They're here as a negative example to us. So let's ask God to help us learn from their failure. All of that was chapter 6. In chapter 7, Job turns from his friends and he begins talking to God. It's not immediately obvious that's what he's doing, but it becomes clear as the chapter goes on. And as he talks to God, we find Job facing up to significance. This really is the heart of the whole passage. 
In verses 1 to 10, Job describes his life as it feels to him. As it looks from his perspective. As he lives it day by day. And Job's description is in line with Thomas Hobbes' summary of human life. It's nasty, poor, brutish, and short. Look again at chapter 7, verse 1. Do not mortals have hard service on earth? Are not their days like those of hired laborers? Like a slave longing for the evening shadows? Or a hired laborer waiting to be paid? So I have been allotted months of futility. And nights of misery have been assigned to me. When I lie down, I think, how long before I get up? The night drags on and I toss and turn until dawn. My body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. My days are like a weaver's shuttle and they come to an end without hope. Remember, O God, that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never see happiness again. Now, obviously, Job is in a bleak, dark place. Lots of people find life to be a good bit more positive than this description. But many people would resonate with this. How long have you heard the slogan, life's not very good, then you die? Except, of course, it's usually worded a bit more bluntly than that. Job feels life is a futile exercise. It hasn't always felt like that, but in his suffering it does. And what he's said so far is an outlook that is shared by many suffering people. This is the outlook that's pushing our society to legalize physician-assisted suicide. It's the outlook that says sometimes... Life just isn't worth living anymore. But having said this is how he feels, Job plunges on. And he asks God, if my life is so meaningless, if it's like a vanishing cloud, why are you so interested in me? Why do you pay me so much attention? Look at verse 11. Therefore, in other words, because my life feels so deeply futile, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the monster of the deep that you put me under guard? When I think my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, even then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions, so that I prefer strangling and death rather than this body of mine. I despise my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone. My days have no meaning. What is mankind that you make so much of them? That you give them so much attention? That you examine them every morning and test them every moment? Will you never look away from me? Or let me alone even for an instant? Job says, it feels to me, Lord, like my days have no meaning. But they seem infinitely interesting to you. 
In verse 9 he says, literally, you don't look away long enough for me to swallow my spit. Why are you so fascinated with me, God? In verse 12 he says, anyone would think I was a monster of the deep. Back in chapter 3, Job mentioned Leviathan. In the pagan cultures of Job's day, Leviathan was a mythical, mythical sea beast. It represented the forces of evil and chaos in the world. And Job has something similar in mind here. And his point is, Lord, you pay me so much attention, people will begin to think I'm some big player in the universe. But don't you know who I am, Lord? I'm nobody. I'm living a little, futile life. I'm just a breath, a cloud that vanishes. And Job ends chapter 7 by saying, Even if I had sinned, how could my sin even be worth your attention? I'm such an insignificant blot. How would my sin be worth your trouble? Why even bother chasing me down for it? Wouldn't it be easier just to pardon it and get on with more important things in the universe? What are we to make of this from Job? What's going on in this chapter is that Job is facing up to significance. In his pain, he feels his life is an insignificant breath. That's the first part of chapter 7. He feels like nothing, but he knows better than that. He cannot escape the fact that God is very, very interested in his life. God is all over him. That's the second half of the chapter. Now Job may not want to be significant at this point of his life. He may want very much to vanish like a cloud. But he knows he has value to God. He knows he has some part in God's purposes. He might not want the part, but he has been given it all the same. And as readers of this book, you and I know that far better than Job. We've heard the conversations in heaven about Job. We know that God and Satan are mightily interested in this man. Yes, he has nothing. His body is broken. He's sitting on an ash heap. That is what's left of Job's worldly significance and status. Nothing. But the eyes of heaven and hell are fixed on this guy. In those halls of power, it matters immensely whether Job curses God or worships him. At this stage in Job's life, his significance is a great burden to him. Notice in verse 17 how he flips around the idea we heard earlier from Psalm 8. We read it near the beginning of the service. When Psalm 8 says, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? It leads into praise. 
How majestic is your name? But when Job considers the attention God gives to mankind, he complains about it. He wants to roll over and die. He doesn't want the part he's been given in God's big plan. And yet, for all his shouting about it, this is what keeps Job going. The knowledge that his life does have significance. That it really does matter whether he stays faithful to God or curses him. That it really does matter whether he turns from sin or treasures it up in his heart. So yes, Job argues about the significance God has given him. He complains about having no peace to even swallow his spit. But even as he argues, he knows every day and night of his life matters. It has God's attention. As much as any supernatural power has God's attention. Maybe today you love the way your life is. Maybe you find your life just about unbearable. Probably most of us are somewhere in between. But please never lose sight of this. Your life has eternal significance. Heaven and hell are more interested than you realize. So keep going. Commit yourself to stay faithful to God. Commit to helping one another stay faithful. And thank God that you and I know more than Job did. He wondered if his sins were even worth God's effort. You and I know how far God went to deal with our sins. When we look at the cross, how can we doubt that we matter to God? How can we wonder about the significance of our lives? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And our salvation was a salvation to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Maybe the good work prepared for you is to keep going. To stay faithful in a dark time. To stay faithful when it seems pointless. Never doubt the significance of getting up every morning and living one more day for God. It might feel futile to you. But never doubt what a blow it is to Satan. And what a proclamation it is of God's worthiness. Just that one day more of faithfulness. And remember, when it's all over, we do not vanish into the dust. We don't blow away like a cloud. We either go 
where those who curse God go, or we take our inheritance, the kingdom prepared for us since the creation of the world. Keep going. We're going to respond.